Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And uh, today Kristen and I are, uh, are jumping on a pop culture train. We are going to talk about sociopaths today because the movie Gone Girl is hitting theaters October 3rd. And spoiler alert, listeners, one of the main characters in that movie... Well, also in the book, can be considered a sociopath. And so this led us to read all sorts of fascinating things about sociopathy, but also sociopathy, gender, and our fascination with women who are called sociopaths. That's right. So all aboard the Sociopathy Express, everybody. And the train's pulling out of the station. But it is pulling out of the station in the 1950s. How about that for a a smooth uh, transportation-related transition to 1952 when the first DSM, or Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the so-called psychologist or psychiatrist Bible, comes out. And it mentions personality disorders. And personality disorders were generally viewed as deficit conditions reflecting partial developmental arrests or distortions in development secondary to inadequate or pathological early caretaking. How about that for some jargony, jargon, jargon? Right. And what's interesting about the earliest definition uh, of personality disorders and sociopathy is that it's very fluid. We Our definition of sociopathy has changed to the point where really today psychologists and psychiatrists don't rely too heavily on that term at all. Sociopathy and psychopathy both fall under these things called personality disorders. Um, and sociopathic personality disturbance was, in the 1952 DSM, one of three personality disorder subtypes. And it reflected what, at the time, were considered different types of social deviance, which definitely don't apply anymore. Things like just sexual deviation, you were considered a sociopath. Addiction, you were also considered a sociopath. And then that was further subcategorized into alcoholism and drug addiction. And we have completely moved away from that definition and those subcategories in particular. But uh, the whole tie into early caregiving triggers for sociopathy, that is still sort of part of the general definition. Yeah, that caregiving trigger uh, is a really important distinction between between sociopathy and psychopathy. Because today, as Caroline mentioned, clinicians don't necessarily label many people as sociopaths, but rather, according to the terms of the DSM-5, would talk more about people having antisocial personality disorders. And while there's still a lot of disagreement about what the distinct differences, or if there are, in fact, distinct differences between psychopaths and sociopaths, uh, some think that sociopaths are the product of nurture, i.e. those caregiving triggers, whereas psychopaths are more the product of nature, of being born with 
that kind of deviance. Right, exactly, which is pretty scary to think about either way. Um, so Donald Black, who's a psychiatry professor and author of the book Bad Boys, Bad Men, Confronting Antisocial Personality Disorder, parentheses, sociopathy, calls antisocial personality disorders uh, recurrent and serial patterns of misbehavior that involve significant facets of life, and it's marked by violation of social norms and regulations that occur over time. And it can range, he says, from things like just lying, pathological lying, all the way up to petty theft, violence, and even murder. And basically, to give you a rundown, people with antisocial personality disorders lack empathy and a conscience and really don't care about the rights of others. And so if you extrapolate that, that could either apply to the lying thing. I don't care about you or what you think, so I'm going to lie to you all the way up to murder. I don't care about you as a human, so I'm going to murder you. Yeah, I'm going to just get you out of my way. Uh, statistically, antisocial personality disorder is thought to affect 4% of the population or about 1 in 25 people. And signs of it, uh, <laughs> excluding murder, include things like disregard for right and wrong, persistent lying, deceit, exploitation, a sense of superiority and exhibitionism, which might lead to difficulties with the law. It might also manifest if they are parents in things like child abuse or neglect. And again and again, just different ways of exhibiting that lack of empathy, whether it's through neglect or through lying or through breaking the law. Right. And these signs generally show up uh, in childhood, but become fully evident for most sociopaths uh, during their 20s and 30s. And so people argue, we, you know, we talked about uh, issues in childhood being a trigger. And uh, some researchers, this is Donald Black in particular, would argue that it's sort of a combination of both nature and nurture. Perhaps there is a genetic component that makes you prone to this type of personality disorder, but then life situations such as child abuse or neglect could potentially trigger it. Yeah, so different risk factors include things like family histories of personality disorders or mental illness, uh, being subjected to verbal, physical, or sexual abuse during childhood, uh, an unstable or chaotic upbringing, a history of substance abuse in parents or other family members. And when it comes to that diagnosis, we mentioned that the symptoms start to emerge in adolescence a lot of times, but... A child will not be diagnosed necessarily with antisocial personality disorder or uh, certainly not be labeled a sociopath in childhood because of that nurturing factor going on and clinicians thinking, well, they're still sort of developing who they are if we label them this way now that might n- not be correct. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would be un- it would be unfortunate to label a child a sociopath yeah. uh, when maybe they're just, you know, poorly behaved. But conduct disorders in childhood are another big sign. They are definitely studies have shown that conduct is serious conduct disorder. I'm not talking about a kid who won't listen or won't mind. I mean, like a serious conduct disorder as a child is linked to 
being a sociopath as an adult. But so we mentioned nature versus nurture. And there was a really interesting story from NPR that talked to neuroscientist James Fallon. I don't know if people read this. I did. I had not heard about this before, but I thought it was so interesting. So neuroscientist James Fallon had been studying psychopaths for years, looking at brain scans, studying the link between psychopathy, sociopathy and criminal behavior in prisoners. Um, and he decided to look at his own brain scan after talking to his mama. And his mama said, we have some really interesting characters in our family tree, a lot of like bad seeds. And he went back and realized that he was descended from not one, not two, but several like murderers, criminals, including Lizzie Borden. He is a relative of Lizzie Borden. And so he's like, well, that's really weird because I never feel like I want to kill anyone. So let me look into this. And and for listeners unfamiliar with who Lizzie Borden is, she is known for being the child who killed her parents. With an axe. With an axe. Right. She was acquitted, though. Um, so he had already had a bunch of brain scans and blood samples and stuff from his own family because I guess if you're related to a neuroscientist, you're just going to get picked on for research. Yeah, that's what you do at Thanksgiving dinner. Right. Hey, everybody, get in the MRI machine. So he looked at a bunch of scans and he looked at his kids and they all look like a normal brain scan. He looked at his mom's. Hers look normal. Fallon looks at his own and he goes, uh-oh. Uh-oh. He had absolutely low activity in the orbital cortex, the front of the brain, just like the psychopaths and sociopath criminals that he had been studying. So he writes that people with low activity in that section of the brain, the orbital cortex, are either freewheeling types or sociopaths. The orbital cortex essentially serves to put a break on the amygdala, which is involved in aggression. And in addition to that low activity in the orbital cortex, there's something called the MAOA gene, also known as the warrior gene, which is um, an enzyme that regulates serotonin. And a lot of scientists think that if you have a certain version of this so-called warrior gene, your brain won't respond to the calming effects of serotonin. So... Psychopaths, sociopaths are kind of always primed to fight. This is one reason why one hallmark of a sociopath is never learning their lesson. Right. You punish them. It doesn't matter. They're going to do the same thing again because their brains are literally primed for yeah. this. And Yeah. And no conscience. And so he points out, Fallon points out that the third piece of the puzzle in terms of his research, is child abuse or violence, which can be a major trigger if those other puzzle pieces are already there. So if you already have low to no activity in your orbital cortex and you also have this warrior gene, so you're primed to fight or primed to be aggressive, if you already suffered as a child, then that's like a perfect storm that could set you on a path of being a sociopath. He, in the interview, and his wife, too, were saying, well, thank goodness I had a great childhood, a great upbringing, very loving family, because, oh, boy. And his wife even joked about it. His wife was like, well, I'm still here, so everything's fine. And it's such evidence that nature in this instance is not destiny. Because you have this perfectly well-adjusted, successful neuroscientist who just happens to discover that he has the brain of a psychopath. Right. 
Huh. But yeah, and so it, it, he's his own very interesting case study as to like, why am I not in prison and all these other people are in prison for doing these terrible things? I just didn't have some of the puzzle pieces. Well, and because of that, that nurture puzzle piece, it is possible, unlike what a lot of people think, it is possible for sociopaths to be treated. Mm-hmm. Psychotherapy can possibly be affected. The challenge, though, is that person wanting to have that change happen. Right, because as you might imagine, a lot of people who would be labeled sociopaths, I mean, they don't have a conscience, so they might, and they have a sense of superiority. Yeah, so they, they see no need to change. Yeah, what? why would I need to change? It's all of you sheeple who out there who need to change. Which, which some days, you know, when I'm being hard on myself, <laughs> uh, that kind of a brain would be a nice, nice break. Like, I'm fine. I'm totally fine here. It's the rest of you. I'm going to keep sitting on this couch watching Netflix. Yeah. Murdering. I think that's, I think that's something totally different, but. <laughs> I think that's just wanting a lazy Sunday. You deserve it. Just an insight into my brain. Yep. Well, so we haven't talked about gender yet. Um, you know, we talked about how about 4% of the population could be qualified as having an antisocial personality disorder. But so what, what about gender? Well, it turns out that there is a massive gender gap when it comes to antisocial personality disorder and people we think of as sociopaths because very few of them are women. Out of about the 10 million sociopaths in the United States, only one and a half million of them are women. And depending on the particular population, men are two to eight times likelier to have it. So what's going on with that on the nature front? Well, some scientists think that it has a lot to do with that warrior gene that I just mentioned. Yeah, because the warrior gene is a variant on the X chromosome and men have just the one X chromosome, which means that they're more sensitive to the warrior genes effects and therefore more likely than women to exhibit antisocial behavior. And uh, Donald Black, who's the author of that book we cited earlier, Bad Boys, Bad Men, offers a, another possible explanation in that the way that antisocial personality disorders, sociopathy, the way they manifest in people could also have something to do with gender norms, that no matter what we're feeling inside, even if you, Kristen, as a woman, Me? are just as ragey as a man next to you, uh-huh, that happens, <laughs> that you might, because you're a woman, turn your anger inward, while men generally, stereotypically, tend to express it Outwardly, So perhaps women are acting out in less obvious ways, which could then mean that women are simply less likely to be diagnosed Yeah, as a sociopath. So you might not go around like smashing storefronts and murdering people. Instead, I just eat chocolate and buy shoes, Caroline. I'm a monster. Seriously, though, we did find a few studies looking at how generals might play into the diagnosis of personality disorders because you have borderline personality disorder being overwhelmingly diagnosed to women. And we've actually, side note, had a few stuff I've never told you listeners request an episode on that, which we can come back and do later on if folks would like to hear about that. But we found one study in the Journal of Personality Disorders in 2002 looking at this, and it examined whether 
establish gender differences in the prevalence of normal personality traits could explain the gender differences found in the prevalence of personality disorders. So, in other words, how we or clinicians sitting there would assume for instance, talking about the anger inward, outward, would assume that either a woman or a man sitting on the couch across from them should be processing their emotions. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yes, there are definitely stereotypical gender roles and expectations, whether you're a man or a woman, but it's not just biological sex that has stuff to do with this. It's also gender roles and the way that you fit into the spectrum as far as masculinity and femininity, not just your biological sex. And so they found that, you know, as you would expect, antisocial traits, those people with low levels of agreeableness, that was associated with masculinity. Whereas men, so it's still men, but men who are described as feminine ended up exhibiting more features of all the personality disorders they studied except antisocial. Whereas when it comes to dependent traits, which involve higher levels of agreeableness, were not so surprisingly associated with higher femininity and lower masculinity. So these studies aren't saying that all of these diagnoses are totally bunk because all clinicians are just operating on gender stereotypes, but it nonetheless, for something as puzzling as these kinds of personality disorders, it is worthwhile to pay attention to, again, like how the nurture intertwines with the nature because gender roles would certainly be a part of that nurture piece. Absolutely. But what is it, though, about this combination of nature-nurture that manifests in these antisocial personality disorders, which when you say it like that, that doesn't sound too appealing at all. And yet, we seem to have, especially now, a pop cultural fascination with them and almost like a secret sort of admiration for the sociopath. Mm-hmm. So let's dig, let's dig more into that when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. So in terms of, of the pop culture fascination with the sociopath, I think it makes sense. I think, uh, you know, the sociopath is someone that we have described in the first half of this episode as someone, yeah, who's terrible and doesn't have a conscience. But also if we're watching them as a third party from the safety of our own living room, it's, it's almost as if you can look at this character, this archetype, this trope and say, man, Look at how powerful he or she is. Look at the fact that this person doesn't really give a hoot. Give a hoot. He get, uh, the, the sociopath certainly gives no hoots. That's right. <laughs> the new tagline for sociopaths everywhere. Um, well, what's interesting to see, too, is when you look at characters, sociopathic characters on television, like Tony Soprano or Walter White, Dexter, Stringer Bell and Marlowe from The Wire... What you do see is that it's this sociopathy as manifested in sort of the 
unadulterated violent masculinity in a way. They are murdering people. They're out for themselves. They're getting wealth and power along the way. Uh, some also called Don Draper a sociopath. So he's clearly not killing people, but he is having sex left and right and, and lying constantly yeah. with no conscience as well. So what's going on with this? Well, Adam Kotzko over at the New Inquiry wrote a long piece about this, and he said that it seems as though most cultures have lionized ruthless individuals who make their own rules. Yet there is something new going on in this entertainment trend that goes beyond the understandable desire to fantasize about living without the restrictions of society. He says that this fantasy sociopath is somehow outside social norms. And he goes on to talk about how this person, this character, is totally bereft of sympathy and totally amoral. They're a master manipulator doing whatever they can to get what he or she wants. But we're looking at them and we're just going like, oh, that is so cool. Yeah, because what would it be like through this fantasy sociopath? It allows us to just take a moment and consider and indulge in this idea of living without any rules whatsoever, only, you know, serving ourselves. And um, one thing in his essay that really jumped out to me was this idea that perhaps our admiration of these sociopaths on screen is connected to our desire to avoid awkwardness, mm-hmm. because I feel like there is a total like pop cultural obsession right now with awkwardness and also on the other end of it with these sociopaths. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how maybe the fantasy of the sociopath is partly the fact that sociopaths don't experience awkwardness because they part of like awkwardness in and of itself. Social awkwardness is all about feeling uncomfortable with the violation of social norms of not knowing what rules to follow you know the dead silence not knowing how to fill it I have a very close and personal relationship (laughs) with this feeling but a sociopath could yet again give a hoot, Caroline, could about, not. could not give a, could not give a hoot about the awkward silence because there are, you know, that person is living in sort of that, that psychological vacuum where there yeah. are no rules. Who cares? Yeah. He says so that if you're sitting on your couch watching Tony Soprano do his thing, it's a thought experiment based on the question, what if I really and truly did not give a bleep about anyone? The answer they provide? then I would be powerful and free. We all we all want to avoid the awkwardness. And so maybe that's a good test that we can all perform right now on ourselves. Do you feel awkward on a regular basis? Yes? Okay, you're probably not a sociopath. Congratulations to a portion of our audience. <laughs> this is true. Well, and these fantasy sociopaths, too, are so clearly not grounded in all of the clinical stuff we were just talking about in terms of how sociopaths might have this neurological predisposition for these kinds of behaviors, but a lot of that is triggered by a series of unfortunate events. You know, it's not like being a fantasy sociopath is like, you just won the lottery, dude. Everything's great for you. No, no. Right, because, you know, some some of the studies and articles we looked at were talking about how a lot of sociopaths come out of broken homes. Kids who were just left to their own devices, they were neglected, and when mom or dad or grandma or whoever did come home, then they were abused verbally or physically. And then they end up in the criminal system, and they end up in prison. Very much unlike a lot of the people 
that, as Kotzko says, we lionize for their ruthless activity, their ruthless behavior. Well, it seems like when it comes to this fantasy sociopath, though, that Kotzko is talking about, we are misinterpreting that as what's really a fantasy psychopath. Because the psychopath is the one that we hear about a lot in terms of, you know, the psychopaths among us, psychopaths, the CEOs, like psychopaths do tend to, not always, but they have a, a greater likelihood of being very successful because they tend to be very charming mm-hmm. with, uh, with that lack of empathy on top of it, which unfortunately is kind of a recipe for success in certain ways. Whereas the sociopath, like you said, Caroline, in real world terms, often has a much harder time climbing a ladder if they even want to climb a ladder. Right. And when we were searching for this episode, I ran a Google Trends search and a Google Ingram search for our use of the term sociopath because it seemed like we hear it more and more and more these days. And the data showed like pretty much after 2000, its use just shoots up. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think we do just sort of throw it around. Yeah. I know that I throw it around, not throw it around, just like, hey, that girl on the street over there must be a sociopath. I was like, Look Kristen, at her. Kristen, stop being such a sociopath. Yeah, like, I mean, I don't throw it around like that, but, you know, I, I do know, uh, I have this acquaintance in, in my life who, um, completely lacks empathy, which is part of the sociopath psychopath thing, but, I did read one article that sort of said, are you, it was one of those like, are you dating this person? And it looked at psychopath, sociopath, but also narcissist. I think they're like things like narcissism. We tend to just lump all of this, you know, less than ideal personality traits into just calling somebody a sociopath because it sounds so dramatic. I wonder too, and this is completely anecdotal armchair aside. I wonder if it's more of our, current sort of need to label everything and identify a lot of things. I'm thinking about the popularity of BuzzFeed quizzes. What kind of X are you? I think we just are at a moment where we really want to figure out what every thing is. And sociopath is one of those things that's sort of risen to the top as like our go to. Oh, well, that person is clearly lacks empathy. Yeah. Must be a sociopath. Well, I think also in an era where uh, pop psychology books like uh, from Malcolm Gladwell or like Freakonomics, those guys. I think when we live in an era like that, where more and more people are wanting to know more about basic psychological concepts, I think that that raises an issue, too. Not to say that we are learning everything that we need to learn to properly identify people, but we're still curious about it. And we're still fascinated by these people. Well, and that's one of the reasons why this memoir that came out not too long ago, Confessions of a Sociopath, A Life Spent Hiding in Plain Sight by M.E. Thomas, which is a pseudonym, caught so much attention uh, because, first of all, people were like, oh, this is a memoir written by a sociopath. This is incredible. We have nothing like this. We have to read this. What is it like inside that brain? And also the fact that Thomas is a woman. Right. Now, John Ronson, who wrote the book The Psychopath Test and who we talked about in our episode a while back on psychopaths, wrote uh, a piece in the New York Times about M.E. Thomas's book because he was so excited. He's like, oh, my God, am I going to get the chance to hear, you know, from the mouth of a sociopath? And then his review is so just like, oh, man, 
Because it's a freaking memoir written by a sociopath. He says that it starts out great and then it just lags because someone with this trait, this personality disorder, doesn't maybe um, understand when they're just spewing nonsense, you know, when they've gotten past the point of being interesting and helpful. And they buy too much into their own image. Mm -hmm. And so he says that, like, the book just starts to sort of peter off. And then he says, and then wait a second. Part of being a sociopath is pathological lying. So how do we even know that all the stuff this woman says is true about being, you know, this powerful uh, corporate person in the corporate world, but also teaching Sunday school and having a family and doing all this stuff? Like, how much of this can we actually Believe Well, and he was even skeptical of the author's claim that she's a woman because sociopathy is so predominant among men. Mm -hmm. And going back to, you know, his thing of like, wait a minute, they're pathological liars a lot of times. This is almost too good to be true is the wrong cliche to use. But sort of like that. Right. But yeah, so Ibby Thomas was actually, well, she said she was attacked quite a bit online on her blog, um, you know, message boards, uh, saying that, oh, well, you're faking it because you're a woman or you're really a man disguised as a woman or you're just trying to get attention by, you know, breaking out of the norms of what a sociopath is. But uh, in terms of answering the question of why are we so fascinated by these characters, take it from a sociopath or a self-described sociopath. Thomas writes that in a world filled with gloomy, mediocre nothings, people are attracted to the sociopath's exceptionalism like moths to a flame. And that seems to fit in with what Kotzka was saying about, you know, kind of this escapism when we watch a, a sociopathic character like Tony Soprano or whatever, that we're like, oh, man, he just doesn't give a hoot. He no hoots. He know who it's given. He doesn't care. He can just do what he wants. He's so powerful and, and, and doesn't stop to feel guilty. Like, there is something attractive about that. Well, and it's incredible to consider what it would be like if, you know, M.E. Thomas claims in her book that she has never had an insecurity and feels no anxiety. And on top of this, and this is a quote, listeners, she possesses, quote, remarkably beautiful breasts, which even putting that out there to the world in your memoir is evidence of the fact that you have never had a security. And what what is walking through the world like that for a day like? That I mean, that is kind of incredible to think about. Um, but one thing, too, that jumped out at me reading about how her blog followers turned on her, some of them, when she was actually outed by another blog above the law as a woman. Um, it was a number of sociopaths who had started reading the blog because there is a, an online community of sociopaths, which sounds sort of like an oxymoron mm-hmm. of an, a sociopathic community. But of people, you know, there are obviously in the same way that there are functioning psychopaths out there, there are clearly functioning sociopaths out there as well. And, yeah, but the but the idea of her being a woman was just outrageous. So outrageous. But it's not so outrageous when it comes to pop cultural characters of late. Because in addition to the Tony Sopranos, would you call Walter White on Breaking Bad a sociopath or psychopath? Oh, uh, hmm. I mean, because he cares about Walt Jr., making him his... His he, breakfast. You know, I would I would say that he's not either yeah. because he does care so much. Yeah. And that what drives him into a life of crime is not because he doesn't give a hoot 
uh, and want power. It's because he is sick and needs money and also needs to save his family. This is true. This is true. Walter White, not a sociopath. You, you've heard it here first. Yes. <laughs> Moving on. Um, but yeah, in addition to all of these male characters that have been very popular of late, there are also a lot of sociopathic women, particularly on television as well. You have Cersei Lannister, for instance, in Game of Thrones. Although we have to say, I mean, that's, that's more originally written in a book. I know it didn't start as a television show. Uh, and then there are also, there's Glenn Close's character in Damages, mm-hmm. which uh, I think it's, I watched it on Netflix. I assume it's still on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, yeah, she's definitely a sociopath on there. And then on screen, you have Laura in Under the Skin, who I believe is played by Scarlett Johansson. And then Elizabeth Sa- Salander, again, started as a book, uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Right. And I mean, you know, we need to we need to get to the chase here, people. Gone Girl. And uh, and this is the part where if you haven't read the book and you're not planning to see the movie yet, you might want to go ahead and pause the podcast until after you've done one of those things. Because spoiler alert. So part of the inspiration for this episode was talking about Amy Dunn from Gone Girl. She is the wife in the movie. She'll be played by the lovely Rosamund Pike. Um In writing the character of Amy, Gillian Flynn, Gone Girl's author, calls Amy a quote-unquote functioning sociopath, which she makes sure to distinguish from the quote, iconic psycho bitch. And I thought that her definitions of these things was was so interesting because she ties it in, as does uh, another writer that we'll talk about in a second, but she ties it in with feminism and kind of society's perceptions of what women and female characters should be because um, she says Flynn Flynn writes that feminism isn't just this go girl empowering attitude about being the best you can be. She says, for me, it's also the ability to have women who are bad characters. The one thing that really frustrates me is the idea that women are innately good, innately nurturing. In literature, she says they can be dismissibly bad, trampy, vampy, bitchy types. But there is still a pushback against the idea that women can be just pragmatically evil, bad, and selfish. And so Flynn is saying, I don't write these, quote, psycho bitches because this particular woman is just crazy. She has no motive. So she is dismissible as a person. And she contrasts the character of Amy Dunn in Gone Girl to someone like Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction, who, as Flynn describes it, is crazy because, quote, her lady parts have gone crazy. And that, I mean, that is a, a good point to make where it is rare to see a woman who is simply bad, not just bad because she is driven by the actions of a man right. or by her sexuality. And it's usually the exhibition of her sexuality that makes her bad. Right. Whereas with a character like Amy Dunn, if you know, if you do read the book or see the movie or whatever, she's not nuts or scary or unstable because she has a hysterical floating womb. I mean, or because she's had sex with someone she shouldn't have had sex with. And so she's damaged goods. She is just as, as Flynn said, pragmatically bad. And so writing in a piece for dig about this female sociopath that is so on our minds these days, Merv Imre 
uh, wrote that unlike these women like Glenn Close's character in Fatal Attraction, these, quote, iconic psycho bitches, the functional sociopath isn't dismissible as a slave to her emotions. She's not outwardly violent. She's remorseless. She's clear-eyed and calculating. Um, she's donning one feigned feeling after another to get what she wants. But Emory in this piece also delves into the connection between, pop culturally speaking, between the female sociopath and our pop cultural conceptions of feminism and how feminism informs our idea of powerful women and how a lot of times powerful women in society are often cast as sociopaths, essentially. Yeah, she writes about how this this character of the female sociopath, this clear-eyed, calculating sociopath, nimbly scales the professional ladder. So it's it's the female corporate equivalent in our in our popular imaginations of like a Tony Soprano. Uh, Emery writes that this female sociopath character wants to dominate these systems from within. These systems being gender inequality, the corporate world. And then she writes, as the most streamlined product of a world in which well-intentioned people blithely invoke words like arbitrage, leverage, capital, and currency to appraise how successfully we inhabit our bodies ourselves. So what does that mean, Caroline? What is, what is she arguing here in terms of feminism and the female sociopath? Because there was a follow-up piece on this, or a response piece, I should say, on this at the billfold Essentially saying, uh, what do you mean? Because when you first read it, it does seem like Emre is saying that the ultimate realization of feminism in today's corporate world mm-hmm. is that of the female sociopath, which is just makes me want to Hulk smash some well, things. I. I think I had to, well, I was telling Kristen before we did this that I had to read that piece a couple of times before, because my first reaction was like, wait a second. And then I had to RTFA. Uh, and so basically I think she's pointing out that, so these, these sociopathic women characters don't give a hoot because they don't care about these gender norms, these social norms, these social constructs holding them back. So they'll just plow ahead however they wish. Which, okay, good for them. That might make you a CEO. But when this character type, this trope, this construct is aligned with feminism, you can imagine that that's not the greatest PR for anyone, but it certainly says a lot about how we view career women. I mean, look at these women we've talked about and how so many of these shows that we watch nowadays feature this strong, like sociopathic leaning woman character. And I think that shows that, okay, yes, women can be powerful, but yes, we sure do still have a lot of anxieties about a powerful woman and what that means. But the only person so far in my research for this who has invoked feminism directly in relation to a sociopathic character is Gillian Flynn. Mm -hmm. And I don't see, it's not like Glenn Close on Damages is advising, you know, the younger female attorney, like, hey, honey, have, have you heard of my uh, Gloria Steinem? She's really going to, now let's go kill someone. You know, like, wh- what is, I don't, I don't see how right. that's happening. I think perhaps it's more a thing of, of image, of if the image of a powerful woman that we're seeing is a frickin' sociopath, um, 
then perhaps that can be limiting and damaging to the idea of feminism. But at the same time, though, no one's worried that too much of Tony Soprano is going to hurt men. You know what I mean? Like that that cause there. And I think it's interesting that this feminism plus uh, sociopathy conversation has come up because... Jillian Flynn was also not all readers loved the character of Amy Dunn and how Jillian Flynn wrote her because some people interpret her interpreted her as a very misogynistic character because she has no patience for other women, which obviously is a manifestation of her sociopathy. Mm -hmm. But there were some people who thought that it was actually kind of a misogynistic book in that in that way. Caroline, you're now doing your classic Caroline eye roll. Well, I think that I mean I I I loved the character of Amy Dunn. Oh, I loved Gone Girl. I read it on the beach in like two days. No, but I mean I loved Amy Dunn. I loved the book, but I loved Amy Dunn. I thought that that character was so despicable. Yeah. And so awful and um I, I mean, I, for instance, there's a chapter, an Amy chapter, talking about the cool girl, the cool girlfriend. And I was like, oh, my God, if you weren't so insane, I would love you for this thing that you're, you as the character are writing about being the cool girlfriend. It's interesting, though, because that I remember being a passage explicitly called out in things that I read about as an example of possible misogyny in this. I'm And I'm. I, I didn't read misogyny into it either, but I could see where that interpretation could come from. I like taking things a few steps back. Mm-hmm. I love the idea. One of the reasons why I also enjoyed Amy Dunn's character is just because of the rarity of a woman just being bad for bad sake. Yeah. And I think that's what Jillian Flynn is saying. I, right. I think I mean, to, to leave out Merv Emery's dig piece completely, I think if you just go back to the author herself, Jillian Flynn, I, I think she's absolutely right. Why socially uh, can't we have why, why do they all have to be Glenn Close boiling a bunny? Why can't it just be a fantastically, deliciously just bad woman? And I'm going to ask a question that might be controversial, but why can't we also just have times when we don't throw feminism into the stew pot? Because I feel like in with this... With the rabbit? With the rabbit, yeah. exactly. With Michael Douglas's daughter's rabbit, because I feel like this is actually one of those instances when it only, I don't know, it, it only stirs things up rather than yeah. lets something be okay in and of itself. Yeah, I think it I think it muddies it a little. I do wonder I uh do wonder what prompted the discussion about from Jillian Flynn about yeah. feminism in terms of the way that she wrote Amy Dunn. Well, it might have been questions about people thinking that she wasn't such a feminist character and maybe her being fed up with it. But I'm also just completely projecting at this point. But I I just like I don't um, I don't think that these kinds of characters who are incredibly entertaining in the same way that all these devious, sociopathic, evil for evil's sake, male characters are entertaining are necessarily somehow corrupting the image of 
like women, powerful women in the corporate world. Those women, like our dual images of women in the corporate world and what it takes to be a successful woman, like there, there's enough in there to work on. I don't think that Amy Dunn and Gone Girl is somehow making it worse. It's already bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely wish we could get that dig writer on here and ask her for her take on all of this um, to sort of follow up her piece and, um, you know, talk about the, the sociopathic character and what that means to her. But alas, we can't. But we can ask our listeners what they think. I realize we also have covered so much ground and probably ended in a very unexpected place, but there was a lot to talk about. So... Uh, hopefully we have a lot to hear from our listeners about sociopathy. Are there any sociopaths listening? Gone Girl fans, what do you think? Let us know all your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast and also message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right after a quick break. And now back to the show. Alrighty. Well, Krista and I have some letters here from listeners in response to our grandparents episode. Um, I have this letter here from Talis who says, I wanted to drop a line about my granny and I happen to be sitting on the couch with her right now watching British mystery TV shows. I am the daughter of my grandmother's 11th child. My father's side of the family is from Tobago, of Trinidad and Tobago, and I find that the very large families are common in West Indian countries. My granny is one of 13 children, too. The family has been, and still is, run as a matriarchy with my granny at the top, even in her late 70s. She is definitely a woman to be revered. She brought her almost a dozen children to Queens, New York in 1981 with no one to greet her or money in her pocket, as so many immigrants have done before her. As a woman with many children, she also has dozens of grandchildren. She's pretty good about keeping our names straight. During my childhood, I spent all my summers, holidays, and time off from school in her house. I also lived with her full-time during a separation my parents had. She has raised so many and cared tirelessly for all of them as well. Up until a few years ago, she was a main caregiver at her church's daycare, as well as taking care of an elderly gentleman from the church. Since last year, I've been staying with my grandmother during the school week since I live outside of the five boroughs. I'm 21 now, and I have a seven-year-old cousin who lives in the house. It's funny to watch them interact because I was around the same age when I spent most of my time with her. I can say that a Caribbean granny is one of the best you can have, full of all kinds of stories. My personal favorites are the island ghost stories, and in addition, she holds an incredible catalog of recipes in her wonderful brain. I do think that grandparents are viewed in an unfavorable light in modern American society where they become obsolete and reside in nursing homes or care facilities and are only seen during holidays. However, I come from a family where the house is and has been multi-generational with my granny at the helm. I believe this is one of the most positive things about my family and something I would like to maintain because of the benefits that I've reaped as well as the ones your podcast reinforced and informed me about. So thank you, Talis. I, I love your granny already. Well, I have one here from Beck in Australia who writes, I just listened to your grandmother hypothesis episode, which I found interesting as I was raised by my maternal grandparents for a large part of my childhood. More than this, though, both of my grandparents who raised me were also raised by their grandparents, although this was mainly due to the fact that their fathers were away fighting in World War II and their mothers were absent. 
You mentioned that a close relationship with grandparents gives children a closer association with their grandparents' views and ideals. I thought this was an interesting point, as despite being raised by them, I have radically different political views, especially. They're fairly conservative, but I've always identified with a far more liberal ideology. I've actually gained far more of my political leanings from my friends, but I've always been considered an old soul. I didn't have any video games, but I can embroider and crochet. I made a quilt when I was nine, and I was taught to be self-sufficient in a lot of ways that I notice many children now are not. In fact, I view my childhood to be more similar to that of a decade or two earlier than my own. I was given a bike and would be expected to be out of the house all day. I had to ride over a mile to get to the nearest children, and as we had a national park on our street, we had no shortage of space to explore, so that's precisely what we did. My grandmother had asked me several times if I felt like I was missing out, growing up on an isolated location with two senior citizens for company. I never felt as though I was missing out. My grandfather's role in our local government meant that we were often invited to openings and events that others my age didn't get to experience. My grandparents were both still working full-time for at least the first few years, and if there was somewhere they had to be, then I had to be there too. I was raised to be someone who could be taken anywhere. The other thing that I wanted to say was that not all grandmothers are good bakers. I love my nan, but she is the worst cook. This meant that I had to learn to cook very early, because seriously, her food is is inedible. This is actually something I'm super grateful for. I love to be in my kitchen and I love food. Thanks so much for talking about grandparents. I love your podcast and listen to it often at work. So thanks, Beck, and thanks to everybody else who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our videos, blogs, and podcasts, including this one, which has all of our sources so that you can follow right along with us, it's all at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 